Computer, this is Data. I'm an android. I'm a... basketball? I was processing all of the information. Processing. One of those idiots who believe in analytics. Rangers pick basketball? Analytics was crap. Does not compute. Just because you got good stats doesn't mean you're a good team. Hello and welcome back to the Lakers Exceptionalism Podcast. My name is Tom Z, joined as always by Tim, aka Cranjus McBasketball. And Tim, I just returned from a few days in Las Vegas watching the NBA Summer League. See my shirt? Got a new shirt. It's pretty fun. Oh, nice shirt. Um, yeah, man, it was great. It was a little quieter than usual. I know we've met up, you know, had our in-person meets, our, our uh, pickup basketball game domination in Las Vegas, so... I was sad to not see as many people as usual, but it was still like 50% of the summer league experience, which is uh, always a fun time, man. Nice. Yeah, it's always fun to go out there, see some people. It's it's a shame we weren't there together to play some pickup and yeah. like just dominate with that, that pick and roll connection. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's awesome, man. I, I heard you met up with a few people. I heard you ran into just a tank of a man. I don't know if you want to tell the listeners about that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you're on the concourse. Also, as a society, we have just lost the ability to walk in groups of people, you know, so you're meandering. Everyone's on their phone. So I'm walking through. I got like my smoothie in one hand. I got my phone in the other. And I just like bounce off this dude and I look up and it's Shams. And he's like eating peanuts, so his mask is off. So I'm like, that's Shams. And he's like, he's not that tall. He's a little taller than me, but he's jacked, like super buff. And I just bounce off and I just go, Shams. And he says, what's up? And I just kept walking. It was the only experience you can get at Summer League. It is the quintessential Summer League experience in, in more ways than one. But yes. The people's champ. At that moment, he also accidentally tweeted out like uh, like a, a misspelling because yes. he'd been bumped into Tom. There's like that's what I'd love to imagine. Draft. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, he was just shooting the shit with some guy, and you know that's just kind of the point of the fun of summer league. You walk through the concourse like that's Kevin Pelton. Mm-hmm. You know, like I know who you are. And the mask cannot hide you, sir. That's awesome. So, that's great. Well, so. What so I'm sure you had a great experience. I hope you had yeah. some great chicken and waffles. Enjoyed Vegas. <laughs> enjoyed the games. From a Lakers standpoint, I know this is not not one of the better rosters that the Lakers have had at summer league. What what are your takeaways? I, I, you saw one or two games. I only saw the them. one in four okay. days, which is disappointing. Oh. But um, I did watch the other games. It was ugly. You know, we played the Knicks, and obviously, they have a lot of their team there Obi Toppin uh Emmanuel quickly uh they also have a couple you know first second round picks there that'll probably make the team this season so it was a it wasn't the the typical summer league team where you know it's it's one or two guys and a bunch of scrubs they had a pretty solid roster uh and it was pretty tough for the Lakers to score or to create any kind of advantage in any meaningful way. Part of that, I think, is the team construction. Um, they don't really have a, a shot creator as much as we want it to be Reeves or McClung or even Ayayi. Um, but, you know, watching that game, the players who kind of stood out the most, uh, like Ayayi had a pretty solid game, but he didn't get a lot of touches. It's kind of been mm-hmm. 
uh, what's been going on with him this whole summer league. Um, but Vic Law and then Travell and Queen were the two players that actually had pretty good like meaningful plays, you know, they made an impact. Uh, Kaycock was out there for a lot of it, looking like Devontae Kaycock, you know, who has, has played NBA minutes, a lot of G League minutes. So he's out there cleaning up rebounds, you know, like putting bodies on guys, but he's still undersized and he's still getting blocked by dudes, you know, on help, like double clutch, throw a ball up, somebody's going to come over and help. So... You know, I was talking with Raj, like he's just not an NBA player to me, you know, as much as we'd want him to be. I know he's a <laughs> NBA champion, but yeah, man, um, Austin Reeves dribble is not as tight as where it needs to be. I will say Reeves looks the most comfortable in far as far as reading the plays, understanding what read needs to be made, making it. But as far as creating an advantage, it's not there. He's not mm-hmm. going to create any advantage. And when there's, you know, McBride was playing great defense and really bothering all the ball handlers to the Lakers. But it was really apparent to me after playing a team with a couple NBA guys that as of right now, none of these guys on the summer league roster are really NBA worthy. Yeah, and just given the team, the, the parent team's roster construction this year, that's that's okay. Like, I didn't have high hopes for this group. Give it like we have a bunch of guards, and so Reeves and Ayayi. I guess those those are our two two way guys. Those are the two guys that could you know potentially break into something. But there's so much in front of them, and from what we've seen so far with them in the the uh, California Classic and in the summer league game so far, it. I don't know. It, they're not. They're not there yet, and I think that's fine. Give them some time. Have them continue to develop. Uh, yeah, he's someone that a big knock on him was that like he could be passive at times, and I think we've seen that a good bit. And this might not be the best environment for him, coming from like a very strong system he was in for years, and like working off of other shot creators and set plays into more of like a hodgepodge of guys. Uh, without a bunch of practice time, without a true like shot creator, facilitator, like you were talking about. So it's not going to be him at his best form, but even then he hasn't really been all that impressive. So I'd say of the two, Reeves has shown out a little bit more, but even then I think he needs to put some weight on. I think he's got to work on that handle. Some of his like pull-up pick-and-roll shooting is encouraging because that's something that we've seen the parent team not have for a bit, but he's got to work on the rest of his game. And I see these guys as both players that are going to spend a lot of time at the G League level, just hopefully improving. And I trust this development staff and uh, scouting group within the Lakers to identify some some good talent. So we'll see how that goes. But in the meantime, we're going to enjoy our 25 or 26 percent three point shooting from this group and probably a, a lot of losses. Yeah, um, it was 23 percent that night oh, uh, against the Knicks. Um, <laughs> So, so six for 26 um, it to me. It's so we have those two guys, right? But there's also Max McClung and or Mac, whatever fuck his name is uh, Mac, <laughs> Mac McClung. Uh, he him and Shondi Brown both got exhibit 10 deals. So they will be in training camp. Um, you know, all jokes aside, like I was joking with Raj. We were watching the game. Like, I think I could guard Mac McClung. And I've literally never said that about <laughs> any type of NBA player. But um, that dude is small and slight. And, yeah, mm-hmm. it's cool seeing him hustle after a rebound that he gets elbowed in the face for. But, uh, like, 
no, thank you. Yeah, let's move. Yeah, on. I've been um, like floor level with him when when he was playing at Georgetown, and I was like, this guy doesn't. I don't. I don't see it. I don't get no, it with him. No, and so and I really don't mean to say that in any kind of arrogant way. I'm just like, this is just more of a. He's too too small. Um, and if he were to walk into like one of the summer league pickup games among the bloggers, he might. Oh, yeah. fit in the most physical stature wise yeah. compared to and, some of his peers. And I'm sure he would dominate because he's Oh, skilled, of course, right? of course. But Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, nobody clipped this. <laughs> like he right. would kick all of our asses. Absolutely. Very good basketball player. Just the physical tools for him are going to hold his game back a little bit at the NBA level. Yeah. So let's put him aside. It's kind of, I don't want to talk or think about him much more because that's honestly how I feel and, and that's that. Mm-hmm. But uh, Sean D. Brown is actually physically the most looking ready uh, player. We saw him uh, like play defense out of his shoes. I don't know if you saw that clip. <laughs> yep, I didn't see that. Zions, which is ironic. Um, but he physically looks the part. He has the size. He, you know, it's summer league, so it, it's a mess. And honestly, he was one for five in that game. Didn't look great offensively, but he did some things defensively that you you can like. But it's mm-hmm. still far reach from seeing him fully make the fifteen man roster. Level maybe he gets a G League spot. Um, yeah, he. I mean, I think the path for him is a little bit more clear just given how few wings the Lakers have. He has like a 3 and D or I guess that would be you you try to slot him in as a 3 and D, you know, 6-5 guy. Spot up if you need to. If we have some injuries just come in, spot up and play some defense. So I can kind of see it from that standpoint, but I, he, I think he needs to develop as well. Just maybe like like the paths easier. There aren't as many like go, like guards in front of him like there are for for the guards. There, I'm I'm sorry, there aren't as many wings in front of him as there are guards in front of the guards, but from a talent standpoint, he has some some room to grow. So another guy that like maybe there's a future there. And, you know, if there's a nightmare injury scenario with the Lakers, he might be able to come in and play a really, really small role. But an, another someone I'm another person I'm monitoring, but not really expecting to yeah. see much happen after training camp. I'm sure he'll go to the G League, hopefully have an awesome season. And then we'll check in a year from now and see if he's closer. And one of the most frustrating things about that game and watching this team is watching Justin Robinson get the most minutes on the team and just do everything Mm. wrong. Um, (laughs) I didn't like anything I saw from him. I know he ended the game with six assists, but he was a team worst minus 14 at the end of it. Uh, Three for 10, seven points, six assists. You know, it's just weird. Like, I'd rather see a Yai and Reeves handle the ball. And you know what I mean? You get McClung in there to relieve somebody. Um, mm-hmm. but it's summer league, it's chaos, you know, it's probably hard for these coaches to even, you know, get that if they wanted it as well. But yeah, it, it's his chance to try to shine. Like there are guys, and we talked before we started recording, like Emmanuel Moutier's at summer league, yeah. Michael Beasley's over there. Like there are some guys that Turek Black, like this is their chance to try to get back on somebody's radar. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to do that if you go in and just kind of play, you know, be a great teammate and play good team basketball if you're one of those guys that thinks that you can do some of some of that like self-creation so it's gonna happen at times in this environment it hasn't really worked out for him and from our standpoint it's kind of annoying because we do want to see those other guys get more you know run more touches and all that but yeah it's that's a good thing to note as well yeah so yeah not too many summer league thoughts like i said i only saw the one game uh in person i've been watching some of the other stuff on tv so i know it's not all based on that one game but Mm-hmm. You know, we did see good moments from the hustle of, of McClung and, and Reeves and 
you know, Reed's getting that put back. But that's, again, it's not super telling at this point um, outside of just the physicality against other, you know, closer to NBA caliber athletes. So I actually wanted to touch on a couple things to pick up notes here uh, before we move on. We're going to talk. We never talked Dwight, so we're talking about that year he had in Philly, um, what he might look like that's different coming back to the Lakers after a year. Um, and then later, we're going to get into a, a film deep dive on none. We did the the primer with the data, so today we're going to kind of put that together with what we saw. We kind of covered different areas of him, you doing predominantly most of it, me doing a very specific segment of transition, but we'll get into that. But before we go there, Tim, I did... I meant to bring up before that Vogel hadn't been extended Mm. and that that was an interesting kind of caveat to me in that I could see, yeah, this dude just won a championship a year ago. You want to take care of your people. And I thought it was kind of weird that the Lakers hadn't extended him. Right. And they were starting to get the conversation out there and then they extended him. So that was nice to see them shut that down quickly. Um, I don't think it was because of the noise per se. I think they were probably negotiating for some time because that's how negotiating works. You have one side and then the other side, they come back to each other, blah, blah, blah. But it is good to see the team put their confidence in Frank, despite having a rough year, even around injuries, um, just giving him that confidence that you, we want you to be here, you know, even around like lining up with LeBron's full contract, you know, or close to mm-hmm. that. So that was a nice vote of confidence that squashed the kind of the bad rumors, juju, whatever you want to call it early and extend the coach and be done with it. Yeah, I mean, it's another one of many, many situations where when it comes to coaching or front office stuff, we just don't have enough info. So we don't know. People are filling in blanks. And if there's any sort of what appears to be hesitation or anything like that, you can fit your narrative into it because there's nobody to tell you no until there is. And so it could have just been negotiating, taking longer. If you wanted to be like, oh, well, maybe, you know, Frank doesn't think he doesn't want to sign a long term deal because he knows this team might not be good after LeBron retires or something. I don't know. You can you can try to fit it a bunch of different ways, but it's a good thing for the Lakers that they brought him back. We've got that longer-term deal signed. I think he's the right guy for the job. He's shown that he can really command that locker room and very, very excellent on the defensive end. We, as we will, would love to see improvements offensively, uh, but they've got a really solid top-tier head coach and Frank Vogel, and I'm happy to see him back with this group. Same. Um and really quickly, you know, we, we got to finish the Dennis Schroeder saga with him signing a one point one year, five point nine million dollar taxpayer uh, mid-level exception contract with the Boston Celtics. Um, it makes sense for him. It makes sense for both teams. They were kind of the last reasonable team where you could get some reasonable amount of playing time and, you know, a and not minimum contract. So it seemed inevitable after a while. Um but man, so you know, I I think this is there's a lot of talk out there about why he did. Maybe it was his own fault. Um, but I, again, the NBA, it's called like this big free market, right? It's not completely free, right? It's not just like I have a dollar. I'm going to spend 50 cents on this player because I want him. No, that player is restricted. You know what I mean? That's what I mean as far as not completely free because Mm -hmm. the team's best paths 
are often just re-signing their guys and not losing assets, right? Quote unquote asset management, mm-hmm. because just how, and that's just how the the game works. Yep. That said, there's something about this Schroeder deal. Like, okay, is he worth four for eighty four? No. Is he worth more than one for six? I think yes. yes. Yeah. And how that all plays out, we do see, you know, players take less to play for a championship caliber team than the Lakers, right? Or other big markets with contendant hopes. But this kind of, you know, resetting of an individual player's market, there's weird people out there saying collusion. There's people saying, you know, just he just got left out of the musical chairs game. So. You know, he had the opportunity, it seemed like, to make more money, to lock it in. The Lakers tried. After a full year, it didn't seem to fit the culture, didn't seem to fit quite right. And it might see, seem, in hindsight, like a mistake to have traded for him in the first place. But to me, I, I think that's leaving out a lot of the just the business side of how things work. And, and mm-hmm. it's like goes back to the sunk cost fallacy, right, where is – Yes, retaining that asset means you don't lose the other assets that you got gave up for it for nothing. However, it also means that you're throwing more assets into something that has proven it might not be working. And so are you going to throw it in to hope it gets better when it might mm-hmm. not necessarily? And Tim, if he signs that extension... People are saying, oh, the Lakers could have just traded him. No. Ah, look at that number. No. Look at his Nobody market. Wanted look at he just got. That. Nobody yeah. wanted to give him that. And yep. you, so you would have had to attach an asset to get off of him. Mm-hmm. And it, I'm just kind of, sorry, rambling now. I'm not really trying to make one larger point. It's just kind of more a, a fascinating insight as to how the business works and how the Lakers pivoted. And I think they should be commended for that. Um, despite the fact that they may have lost, quote unquote, an asset for free. So I'm just wondering where you land on all this. I understand the, the, the people side of this. And like if the Lakers knew they wanted to move on and it's a matter of like we know we can get certain guys in the door to replace him for less value, less less money than their their market costs and they'll come in. They're probably coming in knowing they have some sort of playing time or role or something like that. Baysmore took less money. It's been hinted that maybe he has some sort of guaranteed at least opportunity to start with. Maybe none took less money. Like there are guys that came in that maybe would have made different decisions if they knew Schroeder was there and they knew Schroeder was going to be like really in, like insistent upon playing more. If he so he walked, the Lakers don't gain a single dollar in spending money. So from that standpoint. It's not quite the same as like if we just like let a guy go and then, you know, we actually had another 10 million to spend. It wasn't quite that instance. The asset that you're pouring into that sunk cost in this situation is more like Genie's money. And I as a fan don't care. <laughs> like I would love for her to spend, but we know their behaviors from the past. We understand what they're going for. And I, I understand the strategy they took. And I think at the end of the day, given the other moves involved, the Lakers ended up in a good spot. And they ended up not putting too much money into a piece that could have potentially been a locker room issue 
on the court mm-hmm. wasn't performing to what they were hoping for and may have been taking playing time or opportunities away from other guys that may right. have not even come in the that's, door if they did bring him back. See, that's my point is that they they would have given up an asset in opportunity. And so, yeah, sir, mm-hmm. carry on. I just wanted to say I agree. Yeah, so like They're, from a dollar standpoint, maybe not. But if you bring Shooter back, maybe you don't get Kendrick Nunn. Maybe mm-hmm. you don't get Trevor Reza. Maybe you don't get Ken Bazemore. I don't know. But that is a piece of it that has to be considered. And, and I'm with you there. And think about it from other teams' perspective. There were other teams that could have paid him more money than he ended right. up getting. Do they want to bring in a guy with a personality and a background that he has with the level of play he's bringing who we know thinks he's worth more than than he is worth and would be taking away playing time from other guys who might try, like trying to be developing? Uh so it's every team has their own incentives and thought process and strategy. And he didn't do himself favors by trying to be too assertive about what he's worth. And he, he kind of bet on himself and it, it didn't it was a poorly calculated bet to start with and kind of holding that line throughout and going into the offseason asking for as much money as he was was like an automatic no for some teams knowing what they had as alternatives. So if you would have, I guess my my final point is like, if you would have gone into the offseason, like asking for eight mil a year, he probably could have gotten eight mil a year. But if he started the offseason asking for 20 until there was like nobody left to give him the money he was hoping for, or even that eight mil a year, that would have been happy to take him. Now he's he's dropped below his potential market value could have been. And I do think Boston got a good value for his on-court production versus what they paid for him. You just worry about, and as Lakers fans, we're excited to see how those locker room dynamics play out. Yeah. Yeah. It's like he could go there and be on good behavior and have a fine year and kind of do what he did in OKC because he's done it before. You know, he's obviously on like a prove it deal. Mm -hmm. Um, He's obviously going to have a chip on his shoulder. The kind of guy we know is, you know, got a little bit of a dog in him and he'll come back raring to go but anyway i just wanted a quick kind of primer post-mortem on the dennis Schroeder era um i don't think it was a mistake even in hindsight um i mean maybe in hindsight but that's not how these things work right you make the best process trade acquisition that you can and you know you learn from why it did or did not work and mm-hmm. again the sunk cost fallacy throwing more yeah more resources at a problem does not necessarily solve that problem. And let's think back to the trade. Like at the time we had just seen Danny green, not look like Danny green mm-hmm. in the playoffs. And it, it was, it was bad. He physically didn't look the same. And part of the thought process for the Lakers going into this trade was at a guy who can be a third scoring option at a point guard. We don't have a true point guard. We just came off a season of a bunch of like shooting guards playing point guard, just kind of in name alone and having LeBron be the ball handler. This is that guy can shoot, hopefully can play make, handle the ball, run some sets, whatever. Uh, and you are moving off of a guy that you think is going to be declining in value in Danny Green, who just from a health standpoint, we don't know what was going to happen. And in reality, this past year for Philly, Danny Green had probably one of his worst years uh, from an impact standpoint, at least with our B-ball index stats. Like, the Lakers, to an extent, were right. He was not the same guy this year in Philly as he was last regular season in L.A. He was closer to the playoff L.A. kind of guy, but he still rebounded his value a bit. So they were sort of right with that bet. With Schroeder, 
part of it that like I saw as a red flag at the time and I actually still kind of see as a red flag with some new guys we brought in this offseason is like going from not being a good three-point shooter to suddenly having that one really standout year. And it's, is this an anomaly or is this what we can hope for? Because if he would have shot 38 or whatever percent from three this year and been like a B or A caliber three-point shot maker, he would have had a good bit more value to the Lakers and also in, in free agency. But that just wasn't the case. And it's part of the risk that goes into a deal like this. And even if you didn't like the outcomes, I don't think that means you have to like hate on the process itself. And I think the process itself was it was sound. There were calculated risks. Some went the way the Lakers were hoping. Some went the way the Lakers weren't hoping. At the end of the day, if the Lakers like would have been healthy and won the title, even if Schroeder played the exact same way, we probably would be looking at this differently. But it I don't know. I think that's my two cents on it. I don't think if if you were saying, you know, Rob made the perfect decision or the worst decision it's probably not true. It's somewhere in the middle. It was a calculated risk. There was good thought process behind it. This wasn't like an indefensible, like Lou Aldang signing, signing right. or Mozgov signing. This was like, yeah, I see what you're going for. Didn't quite work out, but like, that's fine. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Uh, all right. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about Dwight Howard and Kendrick Nunn. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, and we're back. Let's talk Dwight Howard, Tim. Um, pretty good season for him. I mean, okay, it was Dwight Howard-esque, right? So he's going to be good at the things you think he's good at. Interior defense, finishing, rebounding, off both offensive and defensive. Uh, his defensive LeBron was an 88th percentile. Um, and the thing that stands out to me is still getting, you know, a, a efficient uh, points per possession in the pick and roll as a roll man. So, mm -hmm. um, dump offs, same. He's, it seemed this is why I didn't bring him up last. He's mostly the same. So, tell me, is is there anything that stood out to you that was better, worse? Did Philly use him in a meaningful way that you know we could steal or 
I don't know. Give give me your Dwight Howard download after him being gone for nine months. <laughs> uh, they used him in pretty much the same ways. He's a drop big in ball screens on defense. Offensively, he's going to be a pick and roll guy. He's going to be a dump off guy. Like that's how we used him. And I think in terms of what's changed, he's fouling even more, <laughs> like at a higher rate than he was previously. So that, you know, is concerning. I don't think for the Lakers this upcoming season, he's going to be more than like a two shift big for most games. It can be matchup dependent a bit, but in most games, I expect him to play like 12 to 15 minutes. And if he gets in foul trouble, you know, it's never good to get the other team in the bonus. But for how many minutes we need him to play, it's not the worst thing in the world. If he if he gets three fouls in, in eight, his first eight minutes, like I, if he fouls out, it's fine. Uh, but that's something that changed. His finishing at the rim had been pretty consistently like around the 90th to 98th percentile, like really, really strong finisher this past season. It dropped a bit. He still like the percentage was still really good. His shot quality was really, really high. And I expect that to be the case in L.A. this upcoming year. So I don't expect a huge like percentage jump for him because the shot quality is still going to be about the same. But his conversion, even accounting for that shot quality, was more close to average than that elite level that he had been in the past. So this is still a good, good bit above uh, Mr. Andre Drummond that that we saw this past season. So it's not like he's flubbing good opportunities. Uh, we, We don't have to say his name again, but. Dwight's kind of Dwight's a the same guy basically just I think with his finishing a little bit worse and he's gonna foul a little bit more but he's still a great rebounder he's still like killing it on the offensive boards even if he's not grabbing the board he's like drawing bodies to him he's being tenacious on the inside and that opens up opportunities for other guys to get boards um like you mentioned his his finishing from a like role man standpoint dump offs pretty solid so I see him as a two shift backup big that we might play a little bit more depending on the matchup, might play a little bit less depending on the matchup. But I feel pretty good about what he's able to provide as long as we allow him to just kind of stay in that lane and be who he needs to be. And an encouraging piece to that is when he spoke, when he was uh, announced by the Lakers, he talked about like, hey, my job at this point is to like rebound, play defense and finish. And that's exactly what your mindset needs to be. And it is a little bit of a breath of fresh air. Um, just knowing that he can be that great locker room guy, have a bunch of fun on the bench and just do what he's supposed to do, especially with adding guys in like Melo and Russell Westbrook that like in, you know, there are scenarios where things go sideways and they start taking shots. We don't want them taking Dwight in previous years could have been one of those guys, but he's bought into what his role needs to be. And that gives me confidence in his ability to, to integrate and perform with the Lakers this upcoming year. Yeah, so for me, zooming in on his interior defense player profile box, Tim, I kind of want to walk through this a little bit to kind of explain for people. I know it's hard to explain stats and, you know, it's better visual, but talking through this hopefully makes it make sense for you. But uh, his interior defense was overall very good. He had 6.9 rim contest per 75 possessions, 82nd percentile, right? So of those percentage of rim shots he contested 45% 96th percentile which is insane and then the block rate on those contests is 27.7% so he's contesting 45 let me tell me if I'm reading this right right I'm trying to explain this lay this out for the the listeners Mm -hmm. as well of the seven ish rim contests he, uh, he gets per 75 possessions um 45 sorry 45% of the shots while he's on the court are contested at the rim 
Yeah, so 45% of the shots at the rim that happen just in general when he's on the court. Right. He is actively contesting. Right. So he's, he's when if there's a shot being taken at the rim, he's there. 96th percentile in terms of that activity rate. And, and then, then among those, those contests... 27.7% he blocks. Correct. <laughs> Which is 90th percentile. Yeah, yeah. Which is really and, good, and... Yeah, so just the other thing, right? Um, people shooting at the rim... Versus what they're expected, they shoot 5.4% worse when Dwight's on the court than expected. It's So it's on multiple levels. It's not just the blocking of shots, but guys are shooting worse. It's, you know, the ones he doesn't block, he's changing, he's affecting, and causing mm-hmm. more misses. Am I reading that right? You are reading that right, yeah. So 5.4% of, of the shots at the rim he's contesting. Or, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. At, among the shots at the rim he's contesting, they're going in at a rate about five and a half percent less than we would expect or second spectrum would expect those players to be scoring based on who they are, where they're shooting, all that sort of stuff. So he's doing a great job contesting and, you know, he's going to foul some of that, but mm-hmm. that is really encouraging. So from an activity standpoint, he's awesome from a, uh, like a disrupting shots standpoint. Awesome. Blocking shots. Awesome. Like shots not going in. If it can't, like if you're blocking it, he is still up there when it comes to like goal tens. So we're going to have some of that as well. And that's not on here, but his the other piece of interior defense is his like rim deterrence. How how much he's like, you know, like we think of Rudy Gobert, guys dribble over to Rudy Gobert and say, oh, crap, I can't shoot this ball and then kick it out. He's more around average when it comes to that. So guys aren't necessarily like deterred from shooting at the rim when he's on the court. But when they are challenging him, he's doing an awesome job. So overall, big picture, really, really strong interior defense from Dwight. It's almost better that they think they can score over him and they're like, you know, you're five and a half percent worse if you do try. So, you know, it, it's just encouraging to me to see that it's not just, you know, oh, shit, Dwight's there. I'm just not even going to attempt a shot versus when they do attempt a shot. It's as good as we just described, you know, earlier just mm-hmm. now. So mm-hmm. it, it's kind of nice to see he's getting he's in the middle. Right. So some people are like, oh, shit, no, thanks. And then some <laughs> people are like, no, no, I got this. Dwight's washed. And then he's still affecting positive, you know, outcomes on that uh, interior defense. So, yep, absolutely. And these compared to when he was a Laker last are on par, if not better. So that is he's not getting he at least this past season, he wasn't getting worse in these areas. So that's really encouraging. OK, I mean, and this was mostly what I was expecting. Obviously, he's got all kinds of A's and B pluses in the rebounding game. Um, I think rebounding is going to be one of the strengths of this team, obviously with Russell Westbrook at the guard position now. So Russ, LeBron, AD, uh, Dwight, you know, Mark's solid rebounder, but he's not on these, these guys level. So Mm -hmm. I think that's just going to build strength on strength. Um, You know, offensive rebounds. Hopefully we can get a little bit more than we did last year. It was kind of something we wanted and something we relied on, but, maybe not something that propelled us to victory as much as we wanted. Yeah. And another thing about the offensive rebounding with Dwight is like, like we saw with Drummond, he was getting a lot of boards. He was getting a lot of putbacks. He wasn't converting well on those putbacks, but they were still kind of free points. So like, it's hard to complain there. Dwight is getting 4.7 putbacks per 75 possessions on the court, which is about like a full game played for a starter. That's 99th percentile. Like he's way, way up there in terms of getting putbacks but then he's also converting really well on them. So that is encouraging to me. And he's going to end up generating more points than Drummond would a lot of times, even if he's like getting fewer opportunities because he's more efficient. 
but he he still gets a ton of opportunities. So that's that's awesome to hear. About eighty percent of his offensive rebounds he ends up turning into putbacks. So lots of really really good indicators just across the board when it comes to some of the things we know Dwight to be good at and. You know, you're just kind of crossing your fingers that he's still been good at them, even as he's aging and went to a different team. Uh, yeah. And then I would say, you know, do you think the Lakers will start Dwight Howard? I don't think so. My guess is they, at least like first game of the year, my guess is they give Gasol the nod from mm-hmm. a like, hey, you go space the floor. We know that, you know, you, you want to have guys that can finish at the rim along with like a Russell Westbrook or LeBron James. That's what AD's for. When you have AD and Gasol out there, on defense, Gasol's the five, AD's the four. On offense, AD's the five, Gasol's the four. Gasol, you go stand, you go space. Your job is to pick and pop. Your job is to spot up. Your job is to, you know, we'll swing the ball over to you. You go execute a dribble handoff or you go pass to someone back cutting. Like, have him do what he's supposed to be doing and what he's good at doing. Don't turn him into like Spain when they played in the Olympics. They were like posting him up. They were uh, like doing all these things. Like he, they had him rolling instead of popping, like a bunch of stuff that's not going to make for, uh, you know, Marcus all used in an optimal fashion. So I see AD being able to be that rim runner, that roll guy, that lob guy, that dump off guy with Russ in a way that allows you to have spacing with Gasol out there while at the same time giving Russ a good pick and roll partner and someone that he can dump the ball off to. It's not like if Gasol's out there, you have no one to dump the ball off to. That's AD. And this by doing this, this keeps AD from needing to be that spacing guy because you can't have, when AD and Dwight are out there, AD is probably going to be on the perimeter and it's going to be harder for him to get to the rim. It's going to be harder for other players to get to the rim. Like him at his best is an interior player, not a perimeter player. Other than that, like twenty game sample we had in the in the playoffs a couple of years ago. So I see Gasol AD being a good partnership from a floor spacing standpoint and with that starting group. Um, I'm excited to see how Dwight can look as a dump off guy, as a role guy with Russ. I'm a little bit concerned because when we look at like just his history of being a pick and roll partner with other dudes, and you just look at like the roll and lob threats he's had. Those pick and roll situations haven't been all that efficient. If we, I was able to get my hand on some second spectrum data looking at like Daniel Gafford, you can be like, oh yeah, Russ worked with Daniel Gafford. Eh, no, 0.73 points per possession. (laughs) Uh, Like that's not good. Alex Len, Robin Lopez, like not efficient pick and roll partners. And they're not the most dynamic lob guys. Clint Capella was a very dynamic role man, lob guy, elite finishing, great jumping, 0.81 points per scoring opportunity. When he was partnered with Russ, if we look at uh, Tyson Chandler was old that year, but 0.65, like not none of the role men in recent years as defenses are realizing, hey, we're just going to go under Russell Westbrook ball screens. None of those role guys are getting open lobs. They're not getting open rolls because when you go under and you drop against Russ, that that short roll, that pocket pass, that lob, none of that is there. Now, when you partner Russ with a pick and pop guy. We see the efficiency go way, way up. Yeah. Yeah. Bertans, very, very efficient. Uh, 1.08 points per direct. Uh, Even like Rui Hachimura, who was uh, primarily a pop guy last year, he was more efficient than Gafford or those other Washington bigs. Uh, Even like Denny Avdia, like they had him picking and popping at times. Or like when you look at the Houston days, they would run some of the other guards in there or like have like Daniel House or Eric Gordon, Macklemore, all of those players, PJ Tucker, all of those guys were more efficient 
than these lob guys, these rule guys. So while Russ does set up his big men really well, and he's going to have a bunch of dump offs that Dwight and, and AD are going to benefit from, looking at him at this stage in his career with how defenses play him these days, pairing him with Dwight or pairing him with AD and expecting lobs to be open all day isn't reality. Or at least it hasn't been reality. You need to find ways to force the defense to not just go under and play drop coverage. When you pick and pop, if they play that coverage, the pop's wide, wide open. As long as you like have it on an empty side of the court or you cut the next perimeter player. We saw a lot of Marcus saw popping, catching, and then a guy stunt at him. And it was kind of like an in-between read. He didn't have the confidence to just pull those and shoot. And, and that's, you know... You got to be better than that. You have to shoot that shot. But there are so many X's and O's ways. And like over the past couple of weeks, I've been designing a playbook for our high school team. There are ways to make sure that pop's going to be wide open. And I hope the Lakers can use some of that. We can diagram some of that. I'll put a video out at some point. I've, I've put a couple diagrams out. Um, but they can make those pops wide open in a way where the defense then says we can't go under and drop. We need to not have our big man commit to stopping Russ. And then if it's Russ versus only his man going under the ball screen, Russ is going to be able to beat that one player to the rim a lot of times. So by pairing him with a pop partner, you can get Gasol open threes and you can get Russ attacking downhill. And then you might from your like dump off guy with AD or AD cutting from the weak side, you might be able to get some stuff with him. But uh, Dwight and Russ or AD and Russ in the pick and roll is something that like it's it's going to be a little bit worse than people are hoping it will. And I just want to put that out there to start with because it's not the same as like six, seven years ago where defenses weren't as smart about how to defend his ball screens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm fully with the start Gasol. And and the more we talk through this, I'm starting to get a clearer picture of what I'd like to see the, the rotations, I think. Um, and I don't know if it'll be like this, but you start Gasol with Russ. You know, I would um, like sit AD and Russ and have LeBron run a second unit with Mello. I think Mello and Dwight are a good four or five pairing because Dwight yeah. can kind of cover some mistakes. Mello can space the floor for Dwight on mm-hmm. the other end. And then you put LeBron at the three, effectively the one, you know, handling the ball, maybe with mm-hmm. Ellington or a nun on the wings. And then you at least have Dwight and LeBron as help defenders covering up for some of those weaker defenders. Um, Cause none's kind of in the middle, right? He's okay, but you're definitely gonna, you know, and we'll, we'll talk about Malik Monk next time on, and we'll do some more film work as we go. Not great on defense, both technique and effort. I do think the effort will improve because honestly, a lot of defense is effort. And if you mm-hmm. give a shit and you're being held accountable, you know, you're going to try a little harder with the right coaching that can go a long way, but still not going to be a plus defender. It just won't hurt you as badly as maybe it has in the past. Mm-hmm. But so, yeah, that little second unit of uh, LeBron led some some spacing, still got some transition elements with some youthful legs. Um you know, Monk, Ellington, Nunn, pick two of those guys, you know, Bays, and then Mello and Dwight above LeBron. You know, f- f- I don't know how you feel about that lineup, but that that makes me not as, you know, there's a lot of versatility. So I could see yeah. that one working. I see the, the Lakers have a lot of guys that can get to and finish at the rim. They have a couple good finishers, like from a big man standpoint with AD and Dwight. They have their spacers with Mello, with Gasol, with Ariza, whether he's playing three or four, he's going to be space he's going to be spotting up he's not going to be running around screens or cutting a bunch or ball handling like he's going to be a floor spacer 
I'm looking at the rotation as, at least at this point, as a lot of like combos, backcourt combos, frontcourt combos. From a frontcourt standpoint, I love AD with a spacer, whether it be Gasol or if AD's playing the five, have it be with Ariza or Mello. Dwight, same thing, pair him with those spacers. AD, Dwight is a pairing that like, I can understand why you'd want to go for it. I think defensively it helps you out, but offensively, it's not adding like a big picture. I don't know if it's adding enough value um, compared to having a floor spacer out there to pair with AD like Ariza AD is going to be able to get AD at the rim offensively, get him as a good pick and roll guy, not having to worry about a packed paint where like the defense is just completely sagging off other dudes and then defensively can still be pretty strong. So there are a lot of different ways you can look at it from a backcourt standpoint. We have a few guys who are negative guard defenders you have a few that are pretty good and none is kind of in the middle so like between Bazemore and Westbrook and like none you want to have one or two of them and you I don't want to see like a Monk Ellington backcourt that would be really poor defensively so you have to spread out the playmaking the shooting the defense and it's to me it's it's a challenge because there are so many different ways you can slice and dice it but it's a good challenge and the Lakers have a lot of depth and I can absolutely see this being a scenario where you know we've heard a, a lot about how old they are they can have guys resting you know once a week just take one game off mm-hmm. uh, and and just slowly build in some load management for players so by the end of the year you're not really sacrificing performance all that much because you still have great playable strong depth but you also aren't expecting these guys to be everyday players every game all year long and then slowly accumulating that like stress on their bodies i like it I like it. Talked a little more about Dwight than I was expecting, but, you know, we didn't get a chance the other day. And uh, I do think it's a value signing. Also, just having a Marcus Gasol, Dwight, AED front court versus JaVale and Dwight gives you so many more options, right? It's, they, mm-hmm. it's this five popper, you know, spacer that they didn't have in that championship year. So you still yep. have kind of the upside of length, athleticism, rim deterrence and, and contestability. But... Mm-hmm having at least one guy even if he's maybe a little bit washed who can space the floor and give you 12 minutes you know yeah. in playoff basketball you know he can get hunted still in those scenarios and that's a real thing but i still think it's you can tread water with a gasol in a playoff lineup i still believe that i Worry about the playoff piece i think you can still give him some minutes in the playoffs there will be series where maybe he doesn't play all that much in the regular season, he's he's going to get time as long as he's not showing up at training camp and looking like a corpse. Like he he should be. I, I think at the end of this past season, we saw him coming off of like a covid bout where like he was struggling to walk and they needed right. to go back and play basketball at the NBA level. Uh, plus being matched up with a team in Phoenix that round after round in the playoffs was going out every traditional center that they could with set plays and speed and all these things to make those guys look bad. Gasol happened to be one of the players they targeted, and so that left a really, really bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. And then we go to the Olympics and see that he was looking similar physically and then offensively wasn't used well. So I get why people are down on Mark. I want to see, like, he still needs to get a chance because if he's, if he's like, no good and he's kind of done next year, the Lakers have an issue from a big man depth standpoint. They, they've got a real problem. So we need to be able to rely on him at least somewhat uh, in the regular season. And then once you get to the playoffs, if your big man rotation is AD and Dwight at the five and just a couple mark minutes, you can you can do that. And that might be the best way to go. But 
I would love to see him get a real chance, and I do think he's going to get a real chance, and I'm expecting to see a better version of Marcus Gasol closer to what we saw for most of re- last of rest uh, most of last regular season, where he was looking pretty good, and he was a top defensive impact big. And I think we might actually see the team dro- playing more drop coverage this upcoming year, which means that we're going to see less of Mark needing to guard on the perimeter compared to this past season. So I think that benefits him as well in a way that a lot of people were concerned about. All right, man. Well, let's move on here to our Kendrick Nunn film review. Um, I'm going to get my part out of the way first because I only have a little bit. I kind of focused only on his transition opportunities, both left wing, right wing as the ball handler, as the trailer. I watched, I would say, most of his transition, uh, you know, baskets and opportunities last year. He was incredibly good actually you know at multiple levels he was especially good on the left wing i posted that in a little video on twitter it would go to my page if you want to check that out i covered a little couple clips there just kind of showing what i liked uh from from him but you know per b-ball index is transition points per possession uh 88th percentile 1.22 so fantastic um he's catching you know from from the video what i basically say is i love how he stops his momentum with a hop step uh, to center himself, uh, you know, stop going uh, laterally before raising up vertically. He mm-hmm. has a nice one two step uh, that he also does. It's not only one footwork mechanic. He's doing multiple things. He's catching the ball, you know, on his right side and, and swinging up to his left because he's a lefty. He'll hop, you know, or. If he's running, you know, toward the basket, he'll one, two to kind of stop himself quickly. I love how he looks for the ball immediately after half court, you know, telling the ball handler. Jimmy Butler is, I think, like a LeBron or a Westbrook in the sense of they're always surveying the court. They're they're confident and able to make those hit aheads. And so when you play with guys like that, like a Jimmy Butler, you're going to cross half court and you're looking, you're, you know, you're turning your body toward the ball handler, just saying, I see, I'm ready. I'm going to find the space in this mm-hmm. defense. So he'll do that. You know, he'll get, I feel like a lot of hit ahead threes because when you have Russ and LeBron on your team, you know, defensive rebounder turnover happens. Everyone's scrambling to get back. Everyone's like, where's LeBron? I got to get in front of LeBron or what were Russ. Right. So that causes some chaos and, the, for it gives you know guys like KCP and Kuzma and you know we've seen this play happen before where they get this little transition wide open opportunity where like the Lakers offense doesn't even need to run the court they just throw a hit ahead none's gonna get a lot of those um and he I don't know if this is weird Tim it's kind of nice to have a dude fill the left wing is just going to his strong side you know, yeah. you're, you're in the middle with the ball. You're a LeBron or Russ and you got guys on both wings able to finish with their strong hand. Mm. I don't know. It's it's an underrated element because he was significantly better on the left wing than he was on the right wing last year per synergy. So I, I don't know. It's kind of some things I saw. You know, he's aggressive going to the rim, cutting. Like I said, he's not just going to run to the three point line and kind of sit like KCP does. You know, mm-hmm. he'll. Run to the three-point line. Oh, they're not – they're actually defending the rim. Let me cut to the basket and get a wide-open layup. He can dunk fairly easily and I don't know. This is most of my random transition thoughts. Um, see what you think. Uh, yeah, I would – 
I learned a lot from the video. So I watched a little bit of the transition film. I looked at the data. And then after I watched your video that broke down a lot of those key concepts, I went back and, and was looking through it myself. And like, I, I'm with you. He's he's smart and talented in transition. He's a good passer in transition. He's a good scorer in transition. As a shooter, as a finisher at the rim, he is smart about like, there will be times where he knows it's like, it's like a three on two or two on one. I'm going to go cut to the rim because I know the defense is kind of playing the perimeter and we see him just kind of leak in behind the defensive players going at the rim and getting layups that way, getting dunks that way. If there are multiple guys on the same wing, he'll kind of read if it's like a two V one, one of those guys should just cut to the rim and make it so that one defender can't guard two offensive players. And he's pretty smart about seeing that, seeing where his teammates are, not just looking for the ball and knowing when to cut. There are times where he will cut to the rim. And if he doesn't get it, he doesn't hang out there. He sprints out to the corner and then becomes a corner shooter. So just a lot of like good transition principles. And like, I know he's played in a few places. He played at Illinois. He played at Oakland in college under two very good coaches. Um, and, in Miami, they they have good transition principles, and I see him fitting in really well with a team that is has several guys that are going to look to get those hit ahead passes. And he's somebody that's going to sprint and get in position. He's not just jogging and kind of slowly waiting to see how to play out. Like he's attacking, and if he gets it, he's going to look to score. If he doesn't get it, then he's going to relocate to where he needs to be. Uh, while at the same time, like you mentioned, like he uses those, those two different footworks to put himself in a position of balance, in a position where his threes are more likely to go in compared to like we see times where guys are sprinting, they catch and then they shoot and they're all leaning forward and their balance is all off and there's bad arc on their shot. He looks much more under control and all of this contributes to how good of a transition player he is. And he's, if you look on his pro- profile, he has a silver transition phenom badge for just the the points he's scoring in transition efficiently and on high volume. And I'm, I, I think that's a great, great fit with the Lakers. Well, that was my part, Tim. You you take away the rest of the film work because you did literally everything else. So I'll kind of pick your brain as, uh, you know, I, I watched some of his other play types, but not as much as transitions. So give me the lowdown of what you saw, like, I don't know, catch and shoot, pick and roll. Yeah. What does he look like as a player? So in we did uh, a lot of this live in the Discord where we went through his film and like people were like, hey, Tim, you know, what do you think about this? Or like, I noticed that. And then just like live Q&A or me like breaking down film, pulling up my like whiteboard. Like it, that was a lot of fun. And I tried to take as much away from that as I could to share here. He, for the Lakers, is going to hopefully be more of an off ball shooter with some playmaking responsibilities, some ball handling responsibilities, but he's very adept at playing off ball. He's a good catch and shoot guy, very good efficiency there, good volume there. He isn't like, I noticed he isn't like one of those players that's like sprinting around and finding the open space and then catching and shooting. He's more like a stationary shooter when he is off ball, but he's, he's pretty strong. So that's beneficial. We can partner that with pretty much any guard the Lakers have uh, on ball. As a pick and roll ball handler, he is a talented pull-up three-point shooter. He finishes well at the rim. He gets to the rim well. He makes some good pick and roll reads. But he oftentimes, when he's dribbling off the ball screen, isn't reading the defense. He's It's kind of like going to Vegas, pulling that slot machine, and you got the couple wheels rolling. And if they match up, perfect. You want your money. But he's just kind of, you know, throwing a dart at the dartboard. This is how I'm going to attack right now. And if the defense is playing the wrong kind of coverage to attack, it's not going to go well. But if they happen to be doing the right thing, it's going to go really well. So he's someone that from like a ball screen IQ standpoint, 
I see why he struggled. I see why his efficiency overall isn't as good as his efficiency shooting in all the different areas because he's choosing the right attack for the defense. And at the NBA level in the regular season, this is something I think the Lakers can help him improve improve upon by focusing on those game plans. We hear about how detailed Vogel is with these game plans. They need to go into every game saying, this team's running drop coverage. They're poor chasing over top of screens. Pull-up threes are going to be there. Take it. And have him be purposeful about attacking what's available rather than just kind of freelancing it and, and hoping that he's attacking things the right way. Because he ends up taking a lot more difficult shots or missing reads because he's just approaching those poorly. So while it's good to have that ball screen capability, that skill set, it's not a real top area of his right now. And I think it'll benefit him to come to the Lakers and not have to do as much of it, be more of an off-ball scorer, shooter, uh, because he's not a refined pick-and-roll player right now. So that was something I really noticed. Um, Did I mention his shooting shooting form changes on the pod. Okay. So he is one of those guys that last year he didn't shoot or two years ago. He didn't shoot well this past season. He shot really well. So it's like, I don't know. Is this good? Is this not good? He did shoot really well four years in college, three years at Illinois, one at Oakland. Um, He was a 39% career shooter over 753. So in general, I mostly trust his three point shooting. I don't see him as like a bad guy that just had one fluky year. He made some changes to his shot form this most recent season that I think helped contributed to that. And part of it is getting more on balance where he is like having a better center of gravity. He's not leaning forward into his shots. We see this at times with his pull-up jumper still where he's like the balance is all off, his arc's off, and it's not looking good. When he's jumping and we look at his feet, this most recent year, his footwork has been much more consistent, not leading into the shot, which is important, but also once he jumps, his feet kind of come together and go up in the same place and then land in the same place in a consistent way. So from a left right standpoint, he's been much more accurate and and much more consistent there. It's easier to calibrate if your shot is off when you have the same form rather than like one time my left foot's going forward, my right foot's going back. Another time they're coming together. A third time they're spreading apart. It's, it's really harder just mechanically as a shooter to make the right tweaks if you have to, or you're, you're overcompensating and like that's that inconsistency is problemsome. Uh, problematic. So he fixed that up, cleaned that up. And then also when he's jumping on his jumper, he's, he's lifting a little bit less than he used to. And he used to really jump pretty high, which can be okay. But when you get tired later in games, it's harder to do that. It's harder to repeat that. And that creates a flatter shot over time. And it, he, he had different shot, uh, jump shots throughout different points of the game based on how tired he was. So these, those three things, Minor mechanical tweaks, but I think they led to a more consistent jumper and a jumper that was more successful. So I was pretty pleased with that. And I I trust his three-point shooting based on his background and based on those shot form changes we see, we saw. Yeah, it looks like, I mean, from the data here that his catch and shoot is, is fantastic and his pull-up is not good at all. Um, you know, how does he look in, in different in how does he look different in those two situations obviously you're stationary it's a lot easier to have balance and go up and down in the same position so how do we if he does have to run pick and roll it sounds like he's a guy you just go under on every time and that's you know that's the book on him 
So he's bad. He's his pull up twos struggle in that way where he's his momentum's going forward and that leads to the the off balance piece. When he's dribbling off of a ball screen like right to left towards a strong hand, if you were to go under and he can just kind of run to the three point line and and quickly set his feet, catch and shoot, because his momentum's not going at the rim. When he does lift up, he he's able to. I I don't know how to articulate this properly but he's able to get on better balance knowing he's only taking like a dribble or two left and then setting up and shooting versus dribbling downhill off the screen and then trying to rise and fire with your momentum still going towards the rim so if you go under him and he's been really good at beating under coverage because he's good at that pull up three the pull up two not as good and that's where like if a team's running drop coverage and he's got a good chaser on his back and he can't take the three and he can't get to the rim He's he's pretty solid at making those like passing reads in those situations. But if he's taking that pull up jumper, it's a win for the defense from yeah, that mid range area. I mean, the pull up three point percentage last year is twenty six point five percent. It's not very good. Is that right? Yes, that is right. Oh, okay. I know. I, I maybe I'm mixing him and and I know Malik Monk's good at those pull up threes. Yeah, I mean, I was just looking at the you know catch and shoot three point percentage for forty two point one. Uh, pull up three point percentage twenty six point five, corner three point percentage thirty two point three, above the break three point percentage thirty nine point seven, all of that comes out to thirty eight point one overall, uh, which is seventy seventh percentile. That's a solid number. You live with thirty eight if you're that guy, but if the if it's the twenty six percent pull up threes pulling it down. Um, you know, I just take that out of the equation and have you, yeah, in that KCP wing to corner role where you're going to shoot, you know, 39% above the break and 32 in the corner, I feel like can improve, but those are the shots he's going to be most likely getting. And if he can't make the pull-ups, like, let's just not have him on the ball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a way in which I see him coming to the Lakers being help. Okay. He shot 31% on pull-up pick and roll three. So a little bit better, but still not great. Um, yeah. So I'm with you. He's someone in, in monk is the same way where like there is some potential for them to be more of an on ball creator kind of guy, but they're not that right now. And with the Lakers, they can move into a role that's allowing them to play more to their current strengths and be more off ball. And then you have that skill set as a backup late clock. If you need it, if, if there aren't other guys to pass to on the court that that are better, in in most cases there will be this year, um, or if someone gets injured, you've got that skill set in your back pocket, but it doesn't need to be what you lead with. And both Monk and Nunn are guys that we can see less ISO and we can see less pick-and-roll ball handling from, and I think it benefits both of them and the team. Yeah, it's just more means to me in a practical sense that, there, that Nunn is a guy you want with either or both like Russ and LeBron and maybe not only with AD, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you don't necessarily want none in AD running a second unit. It's not really how they run their rotations anyway. I'm g- guessing AD is going to do the first quarter and LeBron is going to do the second quarter. You know what I mean? Something to that effect. I would imagine we see some of all three of LA's bigger guys together. And then we see a lot of like two of them at a time in a staggered fashion where there's, there's either Russ or Braun with AD out there together. And Mm I, I doubt we see none with AD without one of those other two players out there to, to bolster that lineup. But that's a good thing to keep an eye out for. Yeah. Just thinking of, again, talk as we think more about this team, how the pieces fit, 
you know, how we've seen the rotations in the past. LeBron comes mm-hmm. out at the six minute mark, like AD and Russ play the whole first quarter. LeBron comes in early second quarter with like a lineup I described with a mellow, a nun, uh, Dwight, you know, a shooter, a Bayes, Ariza, uh, a monk, depending on lineups. And then you bring, you know, Russ or AD back in like at the eight minute mark and then you bring another one in at the six minute mark and you mm-hmm. play that, you know, rest of that and yep. just kind of go from there. But as you were doing, Tim, and I don't want to transition too much, we can still keep talking about none, but you put together a lineup recently. Do you want to talk just a little bit about how you put that together and, and some of the challenges you can see that Frank Vogel might be in for this year? So I've thrown, <laughs> I've been reworking it. I've been, I've been trying to do what I can to see how it could look in different ways based on like if AD starting at the five or not, based on who might be out. Um, it has materialized in different ways, but I guess my takeaways are someone sitting on any given day. It doesn't make sense from a minute standpoint for the Lakers to play all of the guards that they have. I think Ellington or Monk, and this is this has been my stance from from the beginning. I think one of those two is probably going to be sitting most games. I think everyone's going to play. I think everyone's going to have a shot. I think the you, you want to see if everybody can play. There are several guys on this team whose three point shooting maybe we don't trust, but it was good last year. So depending on injuries, depending on who's shooting well, we might see LA ride the hot hand. But I someone's sitting. <laughs> uh, I noticed that if AD is playing a lot of center. You are going to need a good bit of Ariza at the four, along with some Braun at the four, and Melo's going to have to play a good bit. Like the Lakers just don't have a bunch of wing depth, and Ariza's going to have time just based on his defense, his like open three point shooting, and the position he plays. He's going to have a shot. Baysmore is somebody that is going, like the Lakers are going to end up needing to have a guard play up and defend the small forward position. And first, I mean, there are 29 other NBA teams. Not every team is going to have like a wing score you really worry all that much about. And it's fine to throw Kendrick, Kendrick Nunn or somebody like out there to play the three. But in a lot of situations, it won't be. So looking at who they have, I think either THT or probably Kent Bazemore are the guys that you say we're more willing to allow you to go play that wing stopper role, go play small forward defense and be the bigger of our guards that are out there on the court together. Uh, so that's something I noticed. I think because of the setup, Bazemore, as long as his three-point shot is falling, is going to have a good bit of consistent minutes, just given what he's able to pro- provide defensively as someone that can play at the point of attack well. He's someone that can play as a chaser well. He's someone that has been a wing stopper and been a successful wing stopper like a year ago. So he's someone that I also think is going to get a good number of minutes. And he and Ariza aren't the most exciting guys to a lot of folks. They're not the younger guys, but they're capable and they're good at what they do and they fit really well and they're good complementary pieces around the stars and they both play good defense. So I see them getting a good bit of time and I think you can fit. It depends. Like I think THT can get like a little over 20 minutes. I think none can get a little over 20 minutes. And no matter how you slice and dice it, everybody's kind of having some sort of minute sacrifice and then one guy is probably not going to play per, per, per game. So if Braun and Russ and AD are playing like 36 minutes, they're definitely going to be dudes who are playing like 12 minutes that you don't think going into the year, we're going to play 12 minutes on a given night. Um, I think 
I guess the, my last thing is Dwight and Gasol have each pinned in at like 12 minutes, like two six-minute shifts. You don't want them out there too long. We saw how Mark looks when he's playing 10 minutes at a time. Get them each two six-minute shifts. That's 24 of the 48 center minutes and then give AD the rest of it. Now, if AD's playing less center, I think Dwight is probably the one of those two guys that ends up seeing more time. But that's how that might look. And then just other general things like try to stagger like Russ and THT. You don't want to have a backcourt with poor shooting in there together. So there are a lot of, you know, defense, shooting, playmaking, all of those factors go into it. And no matter how you cut it, someone's going to be upset when you post a list of minutes or what a timeline rotation might look like because not every like there are only 240 minutes to play for the game or what? 240, 480, 48 times five. Yeah, 240. So it's you're going to make somebody unhappy. I mean, a lot of people unhappy yesterday when I tweeted out like, here's how I think the minutes might look. Um, And what I thought was interesting about that was like in all the responses I get, (laughs) pretty much every play in the Lakers rotation other than Braun, AD and Russ and actually none as well were somebody that people were like, they need less minutes. They can't handle that. Or if they're playing that much, it's not good for the Lakers or your team stinks. Or, and then there are also basically every player on that roster, guys are like, oh my God, how didn't you give this guy more minutes? THT needs to play more. None needs to play more. Howard needs to play more. Gasol needs to play more. Monk needs to play more. So <laughs> there's, it's a really ambiguous situation. Uh, no one's going to be happy with, on the fan side, but if the players are willing to buy in, I think that's really what matters. And it's a good problem that the Lakers have that they have so many capable players on this team. Yeah. And after everyone's, you know, introductory press conferences, talking about sacrifice, talking about trying to win a championship, it seems like this squad is more is better suited to achieve that uh, kind of culture than last year's uh, more akin to the 2020 team uh, Mm -hmm. that won the championship, which I this team definitely is closer to that than than last year's team, even despite having like two of the same players on it, three of the same players, I guess. but you know, I'm I'm optimistic at least. I keep getting I keep liking this team more on paper. I still think there's a lot of questions in the half court offense, what that's gonna look like when you aren't gonna be able to run out on teams as regularly. Um mm-hmm. it should be a fun regular season with Russ and LeBron and AD, you know, even if they take some time off. Russ is a guy who's mostly been on the court throughout his career, despite playing at an insane level of athleticism and com- competitiveness. Yeah. So I think that, you know, is going to help take the load off LeBron in the regular season. But when it comes to the playoffs, you know, health willing, um, they still need to find some lineups that covers up some of some of the areas where they can fall into bad habits and not set themselves up for success in ways that we've seen the last two years Mm -hmm. with lack of spacing with you know Vogel eventually stopping playing JaVale and Dwight but AD at the five you know it's it's the big question we've been talking about for three years and it did get them a championship and I think they can put out a different kind of team that's maybe less defensively oriented, but can score. And what at least intrigues me, Tim, is that, you know, we're worried about offense and Vogel's offensive has solution to that is getting offensive players who you don't need to necessarily di- diagram upsets for. Of course it helps, um, but who can create instead of a Caruso or instead of a KCP or, you know what I mean? Instead of a Wes Matthews, instead of a Kyle Kuzma, all of these guys they brought in, Carmelo Anthony, Kendrick Nunn, 
Malik Monk, for better or worse, they can create their own shot. And it's just kind of about fitting the, you know, their, like you said, their strengths, putting them in, in a position to succeed. And I think the they have the pieces to, to, to fit here. But you got to yeah. find it early in the season. It will be an awkward 10-man rotation where somebody's out this night. And then, oh, hey, Wayne Ellington's making his <laughs> debut on November 7th. You know, mm-hmm. something like that. Because I think they've set up the culture of sacrifice and whatever it takes to win. You know, and we'll figure it out together. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. I like the roster. They um, they leaned into their strength as a defensive coaching staff and grabbing a couple guys like if it with minimum contracts, you're going to have guys that aren't perfect. Obviously, the areas that there's a lot of work to be done that there are more question marks around is on the defensive end where the staff is really good. And I, I trust is going to optimize these guys. And I see a number of players being in situations where they're probably going to see a defensive role change this upcoming season from what they've had in the past. Like, I think THT, we're probably going to see more at the point of attack, and I think that's going to unlock him defensively, and we're going to see, like, a new monster defender in in what he's able to provide. I think uh, Kendrick Nunn is going to probably play more chaser defense. Uh, I think Malik Monk is a challenge, and we'll talk about that next pod, but there are some things he's good at, and there's some things he's not so good at, and it's about finding him the right role in the right player combos that he's able to do what he's better at more often and mitigate some of those weaknesses. Whereas on the offensive end, last year there were a lot of pieces that didn't fit perfectly together. This year the pieces fit easier and the Lakers can just kind of do what they usually do on offense and it it should work because <laughs> the shooting's better and the playmaking is better, the shot creation's better. You don't need to be awesome and on top of every game with your tactics in order to make the most out of this team. Like, this is a group that, like, if, if you're seeing double teams on AD and you kick it out, like, Ellington's going to drill threes if you're leaving him open. Monk's hopefully going to drill threes. None's going to drill threes. It's not like last year's team where if the guys weren't wide open, they're either not going to take the shots or they're not going to really be providing a ton of value if they're not wide open on those threes. So I, I see this as a better decision-making team, a team that can better attack closeouts. And I think we have to figure out what that looks like. But as long as there's health, this team has a bunch of time to try out a lot of different things and figure out what the best version of themselves ends up being. Good stuff, man. Uh, A little extra long pod for y'all today. We will continue uh, doing film sessions uh, throughout the offseason here. And, you know, just talking through what we feel like we're going to see from this team. I already... You know, in the last week, feel like I've got a much clearer image of what this team can be as I dive into these new guys and uh, look through the data, look through the film, uh, all that. So, yeah, yeah Tim, let the one last question for you. Question from some. Li- I, I had a few people ask about this. Would you like to explain the background on our pod intro? We, we've had a lot of new folks jump on board and not everyone has been with us since the start. Uh, so what, like give them a little bit of background on like what the hell they're listening to and, and why. <laughs> okay. So the, okay. The first sound is a computer booting up, right? Because <laughs> Tim, as we know, is commander data of the Twitter basketball experience, Lakers, mm-hmm. Twitter, basketball experience, all of the qualifiers. So I am a Star Trek nerd. You know, I pulled in the Lieutenant Commander Data uh, audio from Star Trek The Next Generation. I pulled in some anti-analytics takes from, you know, your one Charles Barkley. (laughs) Yep. And then, Tim, I don't know if people know, uh, but your name is based on an Impractical Jokers sketch. 
So I clipped that audio and detuned it. And yeah, just kind of made these crazy wild clips. And then there is a an episode of Star Trek Next Generation where Commander Data kind of trying to experience laughter and emotion. And I think it's Q gives it to him. And that's where that laugh comes from. It's just an mm. iconic laugh and, you know, our perfect way to segment into my voice. With a great, just kind of like smooth jazz, like undertones throughout the whole thing. It's perfect. I love it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, we've had that since the Taking Charge with Cranjus McBasketball days back when Definitely. the podcast was under a different name a few years ago. Uh, and like, I love it. I enjoy listening to it. It's it's a nice one. Um, so hopefully that gives some folks a little bit more background because it, it's just been awesome these past few months and this past year. We've been doing this almost a year at yeah. this point since we brought the pod back last playoffs in the Denver series. I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, it's just been such a fun ride, just growing that community, seeing the pod be just referenced more and more, shaping discourse, like seeing people share it, uh, building up that, speaking of discourse, building up that discord um, community to like hundreds of people and, and just having great dialogue there where we're not, you know, get it, people aren't trying to dunk on each other. They're actually having dialogue mm-hmm. and asking questions and learning and, and sharing perspective and like helping me and you like see things that we might not have seen or people on Twitter would present to us in like a kind of jerkish kind of way. <laughs> so exactly. that's been a lot of fun. Um, and we set up the, we set the Patreon back up. So if, if anyone wants to join that discord, go ahead and, and head over to patreon.com slash and, and, you know, Tom and I are going to split that money, uh, go join that community. And we're looking at like some other options for, for future, uh, discord types of things. But in the near future, we have our Monday, I'm doing these like film sessions where we're going player by player and just digging into the film. We did Kendrick Nunn last week. We're going to do Malik Monday, Malik Monk on Monday or Malik Monday. Um, and just kind of, yeah, Malik Mondays. And then just work through every Monday because, you know, the bachelor's on and I don't have a ton of interest in watching that, but my girlfriend that. does. We're, so that gives me some free time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So if your wives and girlfriends want to watch The Bachelor and you don't, come join us uh, over in the Discord. Nice live stream. We, we got the like audio and video quality up really high. Um, so yeah, go check us out there. Awesome. Yeah. And, uh, you know, DM us your, your Patreon donation or your five star review online. And uh, yeah, we appreciate you guys. And Thanks for making it a great month for the Lakers Exceptionalism Pod. We appreciate you, and we'll talk to you all next time. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.